feel like you're one of the YouTubers that very much you stick to your guns and like you have a lot of creative integrity on the platform. What advice would you give on how you've managed to maintain that? I would I would probably like advise people to take as little advice as possible <laughs> for, for two reasons. One, I think it's like more fulfilling and makes the work easier and better if you actually love what you're doing and you're proud of it and you're like unembarrassed to send it to your friends and instead focusing as much as you can on making a video that is enjoyable to watch from start to finish. Our parents were wildly generous with letting us take risks and pursue the things we love in a really non-judgmental way that I really admire and really want to carry forward into any like parenting I ever do in the future. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Glad I Asked, where I have the pleasure of exploring the minds of other curious creatives, and we talk about many things, including how they're creating a life they're excited to be living. I'm Sydney Goodman, and welcome to the second half of my conversation with Nick Robinson. Nick has grown incredible success as a YouTuber with 1.2 million subs and videos reaching 28 million, 14 million, 10 million views. His videos never go the way you think they will, and one of his videos is one of two YouTube videos that I've cried at the end of. Our conversation is split into two episodes, so if you haven't heard part one, I'd encourage you to check it out. We talk a lot about the creative process and how he managed to create a niche for himself while also not allowing himself to fall into a niche. We talk about finding ideas you're excited about, procrastination, creative invention, work-life balance, and how to make sure people actually see your videos. Enjoy part two of my conversation with Nick Robinson. So, filmmaker. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that. Well, no, I think it's interesting because I'm glad you did because I had this question come up when you were talking about something else and then I yeah. forgot it. But so you do approach your YouTube videos like a more traditional, maybe like documentarian yeah. or something. Is like, did you ever want to do, be like a director or work mm. in film? Because clearly mm. you have like an interest in it. Yeah, I have an interest in it. And I- As like a consumer. I love- yeah directors I love hearing them talk and I love interviews with directors and I love podcasts about movies and television but not really I, mm -hmm. I I I like slipped up and said filmmaker there in relation <laughs> to John Wilson who is undeniably a filmmaker yeah but I like I I maybe tip my hand a little bit into how I think about this YouTube stuff yeah. but I also when people ask me what my job is I say youtuber unambiguously like I I I don't think there's really any stigma associated with that in my mind. And I love setting the bar at YouTuber and seeing if I can pleasantly surprise them with what I'm actually making. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know, man. I, when I see people like tripping over themselves to be on TV or be in the studio system, uh, I, from my perspective, I'm like, this is, self-harm what you're doing like you are you are <laughs> putting yourself through the ringer to be like a like a late night tv host yeah well like why i just i and it's easy for me to say this too because my my videos are cheap to make you know if yeah. i had like a cool idea for a horror movie that cost 50 million dollars to make then i'd be like oh shit i need a movie studio but because my stuff is the price of the iphone i shoot it on <laughs> and my monthly subscription to adobe premiere I just don't, it just feels like a lot of added roadblocks to the thing that I truly get like purpose in life from, which is putting this stuff in front of people and seeing how they react. Like, yeah, that's the part I love. And I'm really addicted at this point to not having somebody telling me how to do the thing I want to do. Yeah. Um, 
so I don't really think I have ambitions of at this point, maybe this will change, but I don't, I don't really want to make a Netflix series or an HBO docuseries. This YouTube thing is like cooler to me. It's more direct and I just am not that drawn into like the clout of doing something on, you know, TV or streaming or whatever. Like, yeah. YouTube's cooler. We have a cooler place than they do Can in my I, mind. I don't know. I think that there's a lot of people that have like, I think your outlook on YouTube, because there is a stigma that some people have. Yeah, I think sure. most people who have the stigma are people who aren't in the space. And then the people in the space kind of like absorbs that stigma yeah. and they don't actually think it, but like everybody, everybody else is thinking it. And so it's like, everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm a YouTuber. That's like less than being a filmmaker. Right. right? And I think that's interesting because like you come from a family of like very established artists. Yeah. Right. Like your brother is very successful in his field. You have mm-hmm. other brothers that are also very successful in <laughs> yeah, their field. True. Like, do you feel like, I don't know, do you feel like that helps or is something that you've had to overcome when you think about like legitimizing being a YouTuber in your uh, brain? I, I don't really know that they're that connected in okay. part because like, my brother and I kind of rose at similar-ish speeds in our respective fields in mm-hmm. kind of in parallel at like almost the same time. We, Me and Porter hit a million subscribers within like three months of each other. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's so fun. I, I, I beat him barely. Yeah. But like I, I think an important multiplier to put on his million subscribers is that he's a musician on YouTube. I feel like that's... A like, little different. Right. Yeah. I feel like my Spotify streams probably would never <laughs> in a trillion years <laughs> touch his. But it I only say that to to illustrate that like it's kind of happened to us in tandem. Okay. And so it's it's made it like easier, I think, in a way to just kind of it feels less weird. We have a lot of the, the same like uh perspectives on a lot of 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 how to manage getting popular and Mm -hmm. and also i think his fans are very online which kind of makes it like a comparable situation so it's it's enabled me to have someone close to me who i can talk pretty openly with about like so do you still enjoy social media or does it suck for you also like (laughs) it's it's been nice to have someone who who you can talk to that that stuff about um but yeah, it's it's weird. We're weird. We're a weird ass family, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool to have like like I love my brother, but he definitely does not work in a creative. He works mm-hmm. in like tech. Um, and so when we talk about work, it's definitely I'm like fascinated by what he's doing, but we're not creatively problem solving together, you yeah. know. Um, but okay, huh, that's interesting. Cuz I feel like I I don't know. I guess maybe I just can't put myself into the I guess fortune of having like being surrounded by a bunch of other creatives. Yeah. Um, I feel like a, a lot of it, I mean, obviously a lot of it's like luck, but also like our parents were wildly generous with letting us take risks and pursue the things we love in a really non judgmental way that I really admire and really want to carry forward into any like parenting I ever do in the future. They were so like unbelievably supportive like you you mentioned like they they watch all my videos they love all of all of our music and everything we make and are are pretty 
wildly non-judgmental about it and the only thing that they kind of care about is like making sure that we are okay and surviving doing the things we love yeah but it's they're neither of them are in particularly creative fields but they're uh they also never tried to like bludgeon us into being like having having normie jobs i guess yeah um yeah that I, I totally see how a parent would be scared if their kid tries something risky like uh porter deferred going to college to see if this music stuff would work out for him or whatever yeah um that's a that's probably a tough thing to say yes to when your kid asks i imagine mm-hmm. but they said yes and uh i'm really grateful for for all the support they've given us yeah well like i said i mean i've only gotten to talk to your parents maybe cumulative like a couple hours yeah and it was very apparent that not only are they very proud of you guys but also like they foster they like really value creativity i guess yeah and i think that 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 generation that's more of an anomaly Mm -hmm. um but okay so we talked about your videos we talked about how you're trying to corner yourself into like finishing my videos finishing your videos um sorry if i already asked this question but i guess like what do you do when you don't want to keep going on an idea because like I think of when I'm editing like yeah. right now I'm doing some edit notes on a video that I shot in April mm-hmm. relatable it is a slug like yeah. yesterday I blocked out maybe two or three hours to hopefully finish these edit notes and I somehow got like got myself to work for maybe 20 minutes mm-hmm. and the rest of it I was just like walking in circles I was gonna say what are the things that pull you away when you're editing literally anything yeah just any any literally anything distraction do you start cleaning because i start yes. cleaning i'll start clean i put it's a lot of like putting things away yeah i like put things away i'll answer emails yeah that's the emails is such a perfect one because it feels like productivity without actually being productivity and it still work yeah so it still feel- works so you don't feel as guilty it's the perfect uh sinkhole to throw time mm-hmm. into when you don't want to do the hard work of like making creative editorial decisions well and then i feel like i've been trying to do more short form content so the the kicker is i'll go on tiktok and be like this is research like i need (laughs) to see the trends like how are people doing this totally that line is insanely blurry too i i've recently have realized though that like i'm not watching tiktok as analytically as i think i am when i sit down to make a one of the five like youtube shorts i've ever actually put effort into and like going to put subtitles on it and i'm like how should i do this and then i'm like how do other people on tiktok do it and then i realize that i don't know even though i've consumed probably fifteen thousand of them i'm like i've not been watching it with an edit the editorial eye that i'd like to think i am and now i'm trying to force myself to when a tiktok is effective in holding my attention i'm like trying harder than ever to notice what it did what it's doing if you lose steam in the middle of like an edit because once you're editing like you're in it right like this video is happening yeah what do you do about that well well, what's weird about my workflow is that once the edit has begun i'm all i want to do is edit it all i want to do is finish it with very rare exceptions like once i've begun the actual process and like i can watch the first two minutes of the video and it's real Mm -hmm. and it's taking form i get this like manic jolt of enthusiasm and okay and it just kind of i ride that wave to the detriment of my sleep schedule uh like pretty much to the end mm-hmm. uh the th- 
things that give me trouble are getting all my ducks in a row and getting the script written and edited and recorded and set up and putting myself in that position. But once I'm there, I, I actually, I think editing is the thing I love most besides releasing a video. Writing makes me miserable. Recording VO is neutral. Editing though is like, I love it. I love finding the right music for something. I love being insanely picky about the B roll and the exact frame that I cut to something else. And like the, the thing that gives me the most satisfaction about making videos is when I'm watching it back and there's a moment in it, like a, like a twist or a scene or an emotional beat that when I watch it back, like it actually makes me smile or feel something that is like, that is my drug of choice. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and I think almost every video I've done in the past four years has at least one moment where when I watch it, it still makes me smile. And that's kind of when I know the project is like, it's going to be okay. How do you know when a project is done other than having to please a sponsor? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that is tough too. Um, I think my style of editing is weird in that I, like, like I was saying, I do the first minute first and I generally don't just roughly outline the first minute first. Like it is you do the ready whole... to ship. Yeah. Okay. So by the time I get to the end, I generally watch it all the way through a couple more times. Um, but at that point, when I have a video that's 98% done, I'm so excited for people to see it. And I'm so like, God, I hope I don't get hit by a car before I release this. <laughs> That that's the thing that allows me to let go and push it out the door, kind of. Okay. So um, it's like, I can't take working on this any longer. Uh, Not because you're tired yeah. of looking at it, but because it's like, it just needs it to needs get. To, yeah, exactly. Like, see, an audience needs to see this. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a helpful thing for me is the looking forward to it being out mm-hmm. is such a, for me, such a potent motivator. There's, there's this really wide chasm between the amount of work I've put in and the amount of uh, like payoff for that work. And the more, the deeper into the edit I get and the more stoked on the video I get, the wider that chasm gets and the more uh, of that internal pressure I feel to like just get the thing done. And yeah. that, that does it for me. Which video are you most proud of? I, for the first time in a long time, rewatched the Phantom Dust documentary which is a weird choice because it's not particularly emotional mm-hmm. and it's not particularly uh, broad in terms of who it's for. It's a video about a video game and it's a video about a video game I love a lot. Um, but I watched it back recently and and I that was a video, the one that I co-edited with the kid I grew up playing the game with. Mm-hmm. Like we we loved that game since we were like 14 or 15. Um I just for what I think I got like a YouTube comment with like a timestamp in it, you know, where they're like talking about one moment in it and that got me to open it. And I like accidentally watched the whole thing. And I was like, I shot him a message like. We really we ate this up, bro. We, we fucking <laughs> like we we set out to make the definitive video about this game that no one else cares about except for us. And I kind of think we nailed it like that video makes me so happy to watch because it is exactly what we've been talking about. It is distilling mm-hmm. enthusiasm and passion and a desire to share something with other people in like the most contained. It's the best example I can think of of 
nobody knows about this game and I want them to. Yeah. How do I tell them how good it is? And I watched it back and we worked our asses off on that doc. It was a, it was one of the longest edits we've ever done, but I think we achieved it. And today, like I may feel differently a month from now, but right now that's the video where I'm like the Phantom Dust video is, is the thing that I'm most stoked on. How long does an edit usually take? Like, if you can kind of, I know, I feel like when you think about edit hours, like it includes all of the like kind of manic, I'm going to spend like 20 hours looking at my screen and kind of the like, I'm going to walk in circles for three yeah. hours. Like how long does an edit usually take you? Like how long would you say the Phantom Dust edit took you guys? That one was. And that's two editors. Yeah, that was two editors kind of splitting duties. It, generally the way it would work is I would work on a, one part of it. He would work on another he would pass that part to me at a certain point and I would do kind of a final pass on that. Um, that one was uncharacteristically long. I think there was at least five weeks of actual honest to goodness editing work in that. Um, for the videos I do solo, I think it's probably closer to two weeks of actual nose of the grindstone, like editing. Okay. Um, I think. Okay, so but I time so, moves differently when I'm in that time moves space. different when you're editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny because like I do, I like the concept of editing because I like how much like creative control and like it's really where the idea comes to life, right? You mentioned way earlier, like with the Blastoise video, you weren't sure how dramatic it was going to be and how much you kind of have to like up the stakes with the editing. Yeah. So there's a lot of like editing is so purely creative. However. I'm not, I am a good enough editor that I'm a good enough editor, if that makes sense. And I have mm -hmm. a sense of humor. And so like, I think, I think I get away with a lot on yeah. editing because of that. But like, dude, not being able to do what you want, like not having basically like the mastery over the tools that you have to yeah. like produce what you want it to do. And every time Premiere crashes, dude. it is demoralizing. I, I have my Premiere autosave set to one minute because <laughs> I can't, I, it, I don't know that I've ever really truly lost a ton of work, but like I, my, I think actually my autosaves are every three minutes. Mm -hmm. It's shocking how much three losing three minutes of work. You can, can get hurt. a lot done in three minutes. Yeah. I'm like, I, I painstakingly keyframed like this tracking shot or this slow zoom in on something. And it's, it was three minutes, but it felt like 17 and now I got to go in and do it again. Like <laughs> that is brutal. Um, yeah, that, that is very real. What you're talking about. Like yeah. the, the the gap it's like a kind of a common trope that creative people talk about of like that period in every creative person's life where their taste it kind of exceeds their grasp like you know what you like and you have great taste but your work isn't like hitting that level yet yeah um something that has helped me a little though i think is that like because my videos are structured in this way where I have the narration down ahead of time. It's, it's kind of one of those constraints that breeds creativity where I'm like, all right, if this is my VO or this is my footage of what happened on the day with the Blastoise thing, like what can I make within these parameters? And it, that, that makes it feel less boundless and daunting. I think the reason I script all my videos out ahead of time is because then I have Here's the VO and I'll add new VO or change it. It's mm -hmm. nice to have that flexibility on, on when you're making videos in your office in front of your computer. But like 
generally I stick with what I have already recorded and already have. And I'm like, how do I make this work with these ingredients? That limitation actually makes it easier for me. It it's, feels a little less infinite when you're just sticking with what you got. Yeah. Well, I think in general, I think, have you ever read um, or heard of the creative act? Yeah. By Rick Rubin. Yeah. It's the I, only book I've bought in the past five years. It's literally on my coffee table yeah. and I've been listening to the audiobook. but I feel like there's a chapter that he talks about that. How like, if you're stuck creatively, like putting limits on whatever it is you're doing mm -hmm. might help kind of jumpstart you just yeah. because if you're working within boundaries, like you're automatically forced to be creative, to like yeah. find creative solutions to working within those boundaries. Definitely. Right? It's, it's the thing that every writer talks about is how scary a blank page is, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe that's how I've landed on my weird sort of, editorial style of having a big idea and then slowly hewing it into a written script that I have to be the editor for. It's kind of like becoming a different person and being like, all right, somebody gave me this voiceover and this footage. How do I make a video out of that? Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it a little easier. Those constraints help. Like here are it. the pieces I have. Yeah. And like now I need to make something out of it. So like, Something that's really interesting is as you've been bringing up this Phantom Dust video, mm -hmm. it's if you looked at the title and thumbnail, you wouldn't know that it's a Phantom Dust I video. Know, yeah. Which I think is really interesting because so much of success on YouTube, it comes down to like how you're marketing your videos. So like, and I think you're really good at it. How conscious are you of being really good at it like what are you i mean you've ha you've spent so much time on the platform and i'm sure we'll get to kind of like what led you to making youtube videos now and it was around content right mm -hmm. so you spent a lot of time around content so you and on the internet you understand what works and what doesn't but like i do think it's a very specific art of making coming up with a title that people are going to want to click on yeah and making a thumbnail that's engaging that isn't like a pog face not that that's a bad thing right but like you know i feel like that's kind of the the de facto youtube thumbnail right mm -hmm. now yeah it's it's weird because my videos are i've unfortunately gotten addicted to making videos about things that nobody cared about before i made a video about it yeah so like in the phantom dust example if i made a video called like Phantom Dust colon a retrospective. I think a lot of people would just be like, I don't know what that is. So the title of the video I landed on, and this was like me and Ryan with a whiteboard, like coming up with every conceivable title we could think of and making a bunch of different thumbnails and stuff before we landed on the very kind of weird one we have. Mm -hmm. um, just like laying all that stuff out. The thing that I do that is probably objectively wrong is I tend to do that at the end of the process. Yeah. And I know what the good YouTubers say to do is like, don't even start making the video till you have the title and thumbnail figured out. I'm not that guy. I, I actually worry that some of my videos have succeeded in spite of their titles and thumbnails, not because of them. Um, but it is, it is a unique challenge of like, okay, we love Phantom Dust. We know it's good. We know it's interesting. And, and at, by the time we made the title and thumbnail, we were like, even pretty confident that the video was good and that mm -hmm. most people in our demographic who started it would probably finish watching it. But how to getting them in the door is a crazy tough problem when I'm not talking about call of duty or Pokemon or something like popular, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tricky thing to do. I, and I think sometimes I'm guilty of 
not thinking enough about titles and thumbnails. The Phantom Dust one, though, we went ham on it just because we were so passionate about the game and wanted people to care that we yeah. were like, let's really make sure we package this right because... Do you know the title off the top of your head? or It's like called... It Something about second yeah, person. I think the Phantom Dust one is the the Xbox's Forgotten oh, Masterpiece. Oh, Xbox's Forgotten Masterpiece. Yeah. Um, I, That's I, such a good title. <laughs> yeah. I I think it it worked out because it's that's the th the thing the the curiosity gap I guess for people who are like wait I know all the Xbox games I know about Gears and and Halo and uh, what was that game with the 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 squad of there's like a crocodile man on the Xbox oh it was like they were calling it like the Halo Killer Arms Force of Arms or armed, oh. I don't know Armed Forces something yeah like that. something like that um. The, the curiosity gap was kind of our way to get people in because nobody knows the name Phantom Dust. Um, so when you were coming up, when you guys were like brainstorming, were you thinking like curiosity, like how can we get people to watch this? Like curiosity gap, or are you guys just like throwing titles into the air and then riffing off of it? There was a little bit of that. There was, we kind of knew from the jump that we weren't going to probably mention the, well, actually there might've been some that were like Phantom Dust colon, the Xbox has forgotten masterpiece, but I have this habit now of like if I see a title and thumbnail that catches my eye for any reason, even if it's a totally different style of content from what I make, even if it's a 15 second video of something funny happening to someone in Red Dead, I I have a pretty keen radar now for realizing when a title and thumbnail has caught me and I now compulsively screenshot it and add it to a Notion doc just to have. Very good. Um, That's such a good idea. Because I think uh, some of my titles and thumbnails are inspired by other ones I've seen. I think most of them you can't tell which one inspired it. Yeah. Some of them you maybe could, but um But that's a good like jumping off point. It is. Just and it's just like good inspo of just like if if I'm trying to think of a title and thumbnail for a video and I'm just raw dogging a whiteboard just throwing shit up there, uh you can kind of get in the habit of just being like, "All right, should it be mysterious game or should it be masterpiece or should it be like hidden gem?" And then you're like kind of just you're digging in the same spot. Yeah. And you look at other titles and thumbnails, that like will kind of like refresh your brain a little bit to be like, "Oh, it doesn't have to be this way. What if it's just this? What if we just show the disc and not a screenshot from it?" Like what it kind of that is that can be freeing, I yeah. think. I feel like you've always been really good about changing title and thumbnails yeah. too. Um, if you feel like a video maybe has more to offer than the analytics are telling it, like the story that the analytics are telling. Mm -hmm. So like when you do that, do you go back to the drawing board or do you usually, before you put it out, have like a B team? It It's usually going back to the drawing board. I don't think I'm organized enough to have like a, like a, a backup thumbnail and a backup backup thumbnail but i can generally feel it when like the watch time on the video is high but it's i'm not getting people in the door correctly i'm pretty unafraid to change it um and yeah i, I mean i think by this time next year youtube will have rolled out the ab thumbnail testing thing that they've yeah. been talking about for ages and that's a pretty exciting prospect just because it'll let you you're not putting all your eggs in one basket Packaging wise, you can kind of do two very different ones and see what works. And when you're a one person team, that's that's a pretty helpful tool. To have. Does it choose um, which one is better or does it 
show the viewer like is it based on what the viewer I think it's preferences like are viewer preferences so it's okay. showing both to, to and actually I think it's only thumbnails I don't think they're letting you a b test titles currently but um it shows both to viewers and then gives you analytics on which one did better so I don't have this tool they've given it to like 10 people but one of them was I remember seeing like I think MKBHD reposted or talked about on his podcast waveform, which is my favorite podcast on the planet. Um, talked about Mr. Beast did a test where oh. he did versions of all his thumbnails where his mouth was closed instead of open, which is not how he normally does things. Mm-hmm. And it, in every case it like increased the Viewership, performance. Yeah. I think that's, that's fascinating obviously, but also not, how I'd use it. I'd probably do two very like completely different visual compositions. Cause no two thumbnails of mine look alike anyway. Yeah. Um, but is that daunting or excited? Cause you know, we were just talking about kind of having creative limitations. Yeah. And then throughout this conversation, we've kind of talked about how iteration to you isn't overly exciting. Like every idea seems pretty independent. Like it yeah. lives in an independent space and I think the same can be said about your titles and thumbnails. So you're kind of creating them from the ground up. Yeah. Is that, do you like, do you like that? It's I'm, I, as I'm saying it, I'm like getting stressed out for you. Cause it, it just, it sounds like a lot. It is, but it, yeah. It, so on the one hand, it is kind of a lot to think about it from scratch every single time. On the other hand, I'm only doing it every three months. So <laughs> by the time I'm making a new title and thumbnail for a video, I really care about. I've, I kind of am like ready for that challenge i'm kind of ready to try and approach that problem um and like youtube is and has always been my favorite website so i even when i'm not actively thinking about the title and thumbnail for the next project i'm consuming a lot of youtube on a daily basis and i'm kind of almost like subconsciously kind of pulling all that in and and getting inspiration from it even if i'm not actively screenshotting every cool thumbnail i see i only do it for like the real bangers um I still think I'm like internalizing all that stuff. Yeah. Would who are your favorite YouTubers or like the YouTuber, the it's, YouTube? Nobody believes me when I say this. Like I said this to a friend of mine and they were like, really? But uh, MKBHD is mm-hmm. my probably my favorite YouTuber. I'm like not familiar with so, the content. So MKBHD is this guy, Marquez Brownlee, who is a tech YouTuber. Oh, that guy. Yeah. The Apple guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Pretty. He's a pretty straightforward content creator. Yeah. But um, I just I, I I like his content a lot, but also I deeply admire how his resistance to getting corny or tacky at all. Mm-hmm. He if, if you compare him to kind of his peers, they have all been unable to like resist being seduced into giant red arrow with a circle around it, holding a phone at the screen, being like, this is Apple's biggest failure yet and this new android phone is gonna blow up and kill you and he's just like (laughs) he's just doing incredibly great production value Mm -hmm. really really high taste level titles and thumbnails that aren't corny um it's like he's just one of the last holdouts on youtube who is like clearly understands that being tacky in exchange for views is not actually a pure upside trade. I think people are like, Hey, you just, you got to do it. It's worth it. But he has this, he's held his ground and, and has real conviction. It seems like about 
not wanting to do stuff that's corny or embarrassing. And that to me is like such a rare, and he's found success doing it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And a lot of success. A lot. His channel's like huge. It's huge. And, and I really look up to that. I like, he could probably make more money if he lowered his standards, yeah. but he hasn't. And I think that that's like extremely dope. Okay. Uh, he's also, I relate to him a little bit too, in that we both have channel like videos on our channel upload on the same channel when we were like 15 years old. Yeah. So he's just been doing it for the longest and has a pretty high bar in every aspect of his production. And mm -hmm. I think that that's insanely cool. It's really different content from what I make. Very different. Yeah. But that's just, I just am like, I watch his videos, which are all shot on like red cameras and I'm just, and his, his graphics team is so good. And I'm just like, this is, this to me is cool. This to me is high taste level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who else do you watch? Let's see. I, let me look at my, yeah, look, like, look, look. like so much of my YouTube consumption is the YouTube homepage. I guess that's everyone now, but yeah. like. YouTube algorithms figured out that I really like videos that are like eight to 45 seconds long, but are horizontal, like not shorts, but okay. just like dumb short videos. Sure. Um, let's see. Yeah. Dude, like all my answers are going to be so weird. I don't really. Did you ever get into defunct land? I feel like I we watched, talked about it. I Maybe on your recommendation, I watched um, the. Um, the one about fast pass and I thought it was great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched any of uh, any of his other content, I but that video is incredible. Gone back to it for a while, but he has that fast pass video. And then there's one other that I think is more recent about the Disney channel original theme song. Huh? Yeah. That's very good. It does sound up my alley. Yeah. It, that and your Blastoise video are the only two YouTube videos, uh, of like that I've ever cried at the end. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. That's, I, I, I don't think I watch as many videos as people might expect from other video essayists yeah. or documentary YouTubers. So do I don't you, know why. I feel like you don't, it doesn't seem like you feel the need. And this sounds really healthy because this is something that personally I struggle a lot with, hmm. which is like not necessarily looking around me like, am I doing this right? But I think I'm always kind of looking for improvement Yeah, and I can be very empathetic towards like, Oh, I see why this person's doing this or I understand why they're doing this. Like, Hmm, should I like try that? Or is that something that I should implement when I'm doing it? Like, is that best practice? It doesn't feel like you're overly susceptible to that. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I don't think I am very susceptible to that. Um, I don't know why. I think a little bit of it is like, I kind of, have this compulsion to like protect myself from th those, those influences and stuff. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of like the way that my videos seem to my audience to feel pretty singular and specific and like they have a real weird, unique perspective. And so I think that's why I like draw most of my inspiration from TV and movies and documentaries and stuff. Yeah. I'm not really watching my, my, peers on YouTube as much as you'd expect. Like my YouTube consumption is two and a half hour long podcasts about magic, the gathering and like tech videos and like funny 15 second, like shit posty videos from a channel that never uploaded anything else. And like, <laughs> that's really my bread and butter. My, my YouTube consumption and my YouTube output are like wildly different. And I think that's actually kind of common. I've listened to yeah. enough interviews on 
on podcasts with YouTubers where I've learned that I'm not alone in that, that mm-hmm. like for some reason, what, whether we're protecting ourselves from like being influenced by others or we're just want our YouTube for fun to be different from our YouTube for work. I think a lot of us resist like watching the stuff that's like our stuff. Yeah. That makes reason. sense. Yeah. So what do you to like kind of, I guess, wrap things up? I have like a hard fun question. For okay. You. All right. Um, so we've talked a lot about like your process mm-hmm. and about procrastination and about, um, I don't know, just like you have created a lane for yourself that you feel very comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like your lane again, video essays now are like a very popular thing, but when you started doing them, they weren't. Um, like w- how, I guess maybe it's not that hard of a question cause I lost the original question I was going to ask, <laughs> but the new question I'm asking uh-huh. is like, how, I guess, did you find like comfort in that? Like almost like what advice would you give to somebody in staying true to like their creative vision or their like artistic integrity? Yeah. Because I would say that you have, and you're definitely in like, I watch a lot of YouTube and I feel like you're one of the YouTubers that very much you stick to your guns and like you have a lot of creative integrity on the platform. Mm. And so like how, what advice would you give on how you've managed to maintain that? I think I would, I would probably like advise people to take as little advice as possible. (laughs) Like I think that it's, it's really tempting, especially when you're starting out and especially when you like the end goal is to make a living doing this to um, min-max and optimize your stuff to like the nth degree and be Mm -hmm. like every, I have to have this insanely rigid upload schedule and I have to make every title and thumbnail as bombastic and eye-catching as possible, even if that like turns off all but the most annoying possible audience members. (laughs) Like I, I think... It, there's a for for two reasons one i think it's like more fulfilling and makes the work easier and better if you actually love what you're doing and you're proud of it and you're like unembarrassed to send it to your friends but also i think there is like a remarkable amount of superstition on youtube yeah and people who earnestly believe that like if you stop uploading for a week uh you're doomed there's no way to be successful or uh that like if you change your thumbnail the algorithm will punish you, be insanely punitive about it, and will never show your video to anyone. Like, the the YouTube platform is, like, very, very well-tuned, and the YouTube algorithm is very well-tuned about if this video is interesting to people, YouTube will find a way to get it in front of them. Mm-hmm. Kind of, even if your title and thumbnail is bad, it will still sometimes find a way. And so I think remaining undistracted by min-maxing your, your sort of optimization stuff and instead focusing as much as you can on making a video that is enjoyable to watch from start to finish. Like I think there's a lot of channels out there that are not that are have like, you know, eight subscribers, but have thumbnails that look like Mr. B's thumbnails. And then the video is somebody playing call of duty mobile for 45 minutes. And they're like, why is this not working? And it's like, cause you forgot to make a good video. <laughs> like, that's, that's the thing is, is, a, like obsessive focus on making a thing that you would want to watch and that you're proud of at the end of the day is like a pretty good guidepost in, in getting to where you want to be. I think. I but, think that's great advice. Okay. 
Um, so. Cool. Okay. Well, Nick, where can people like find your content? Where can they watch you? So it's on youtube.com slash Babylonian is the, the URL or just type in Nick Robinson. Um, you I, come up before the um, anything. The about Jurassic the, World kid? Yeah. No way. Uh-huh. Because I YouTube, they put Nick Robinson and like, you know, the auto correct starts or the auto fill shows yeah. up and it's like Nick Robinson, like girlfriend or like Nick Robinson, something, something. Those people are and, actually looking for his girlfriend. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Not mine. But but so I was expecting when I typed it in that like I'd have. But your thing was your channel was the first one. That's that wild. Up. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it helps that that kid does, is completely off social media. The actor, <laughs> the British actor, Nick Robinson from Love, Simon. Uh, we've been in like an SEO cold war for the past 10 <laughs> years. Uh, but I think him not being on like Instagram or, or, or anything has kind of, he's cleared out the, the field for me cleared a bit. I do every once in a while get an, like an Instagram message from someone who's like, Oh my God, you were so good and love Simon. And I'm like, this person is confused. <laughs> well, they'll let them figure it out on their own. And they, there's no need to embarrass them. Yeah. They'll, they'll solve the mystery themselves. But okay. So about, it's just Babylonian. Yeah. Yeah. I have this Babylonian. just Babylonian. I have the same URL on every platform. TikTok finally gave me Babylonian instead of the Babylonian. Wow. So I'm, I'm fully feature complete. The, I don't know if I told you the story about getting it on Instagram. No, there was an account. Instagram.com slash Babylonian was this locked Instagram account that I sent a follow request to like 12 years ago or something. And then like, Three or four years ago, it accepted my follow request, but all the photos, it was like 12 photos. And there were this woman who lived in Egypt who hadn't posted since 2011. Uh-huh. And the account messaged me and said, I assume you followed me because you want this username. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, I'll give it to you for, what are they, like $80? And I was like, okay, okay. Like, this is a dead <laughs> account. Like clearly this person I'm talking to is not the account's original owner. But I, we worked it out. He switched his account name to something else and let me take that handle. And he was like, by the way, how old do you think I am? I'm like, I don't know. It was like some hacker kid, like 20. And he was like, I'm 15. <laughs> it was like some child who had gotten into just like hacking into accounts with like weak passwords. And he made like and 80 selling. bucks off me. So wow. it's an entrepreneurial young man, I think. Good for him. Yeah. Honestly. And then you got your username. Yep. So, so that's I'm, perfect. I don't think there's a website left where I don't have it at have this it. point. Okay. Yeah. No, that's pretty good. I know. I wanted Sid across the board. I was like really determined. I was like, that's so clean. You get the three SYD. It'll be good. There's a rapper named Sid. And she's like a good enough rap. Like she like is like in like, verified. like wolf gang, like oh, yeah. the creator stuff. And I was like, okay, well I'm fucked. That was yeah. like a nice little idea that I had. Um, last question real quick. Yeah. If you could recommend one like piece of media for people to watch oh, or listen to, I guess, what would it be? This is, this is a pretty popular thing I'm about to recommend. Okay, there's good. this game called Fortnite. No, there's this, um, <laughs> I just rewatched all of, Better Call Saul. Okay. With with uh my friend Jeremy, who had never seen Breaking Bad or Saul. And I uh it is I've I've probably seen that show all the way through with different people, like three or four times at this point. Okay. And every single person who loves that show, myself included, started it, dropped it because they were not feeling it, came back into it later, and is like, it's my favorite TV anyone's ever made. I count myself among them. Wow. Um it is, and and I've recently, I think it crystallized for me what I I love about it so much. Besides the fact that it's incredibly well written and 
beautifully shot and just expertly made funny, weird television. I think what I love about it is that when Breaking Bad ended and they announced that they were doing a spinoff show about Saul Goodman, everyone on the planet was like, why are you doing that? That is a stupid idea. Literally no demand for it. Nobody wanted it. And the fact that that Vince Vince Gillian and Peter Gould, the creators of the show, managed to take such a on its face bad idea, something that there was no appetite for, and make something so beautiful with some of the most like indelible characters I've ever seen in TV. Kim Wexler is the greatest TV character of all time. I fight me. Like that is amazing and frankly is kind of the blueprint. Like I wanna I aspire to that level of taking something that is seems like a bad idea for a video that nobody wants to watch and somehow spinning something worthwhile out of it. Cause they did it in a, in a spectacular fashion. Perfect. I've never seen it, so I'll have to watch it. And I loved breaking bad dude. It is we're we're also, we have gone, we've done the weird route of going Saul into breaking bad and we're trying to visit it before I go to Japan in three weeks. So we finished season five last night. It's better than I remember. It's, okay. it's complicated. My hot take of, Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad, which I've been saying for years. Revisiting Breaking Bad, I'm like, this is pretty good, too. Okay, this is is good. I want to watch Better Call Saul, and I haven't watched Breaking Bad in a minute. So I was told to try and, like, go Better Call Saul. I think think that's totally valid, and it's on Netflix. It's an easy thing to get access to. Beautiful. Well, Nick, thanks for coming by. Thanks Thanks for having me. Cool. How'd I I do? You did great. (laughs)